Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh Cedar, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Christy Tate, author of the new book, Group How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. I hope you enjoy today's interview because Christy is quite generous with her personal experience with group therapy and how group therapy gave her the support that no other resources around her could offer. Listen in and think about the risks of vulnerability you would be willing to take to build healthier relationships in your life. Remember, this is not therapy, this is real life. Enjoy the show. Christy Tate is the author of Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Welcome to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And if I'm, if my notes are correct, I think today is the day that your book is released into the world and folks can now read it and find it where books are found. Well, originally this was supposed to be the date for months and months and months. And then um, there were a couple of changes to the schedule. So it's actually out on October 27th. So I've got three weeks from today. Okay. Changes in the world. I can't even imagine what you're talking about, which would slow down a book timeline. Well, do us a favor and tell listeners a little bit more about what this book group is about and, and how it feels to share it with the world right now. Sure. So this book is about how I found myself in a situation when I was, I'd finished my first year of law school and I was 27 years old and I'd done well in law school. So on paper, my life and my future looked really promising and privileged. And I had a lot of things going for me. At that point, I was in recovery for an eating disorder. I had been bulimic through high school and and early part of college. I'd gotten into 12-step program and So I was very surprised when I got my class rank and everyone's like toasting me and I really sank into a depression and started thinking, fantasizing about my death, not planning it, just ideation. And I was like, there's something wrong with me. And what it was had been brewing for most of my life, this feeling of like not knowing how to connect to people and I had secrets and I was very afraid that I'd set up my life now, having done well at law school, that I would just have a life full of work and I'd ascend the partnership, but I would come home every night alone. And so I knew I needed something more and people were recommending their therapist to me, but I was on a student budget and I was sort of resentful that my little 12 step program couldn't cure me. But then someone suggested group therapy and the big selling point, well, there were two. One was the price. It's a lot cheaper to go to group than it is to do individual. And she also said just this tossed off comment that her therapist had recently gotten married and he smiles all the time. 
And something about that, like, it, like, lodged inside of me. And I thought, he's happy. Well, she said he got remarried. So then I was, like, had this whole thing of, like, oh, he probably went through a divorce. And now he's married. And I just became, like, I had an intuition or fantasy that he could help me. So I called him up, and he put me in a group. And the book is about what happened when I got there, the people I encountered. And it's a, it, was a, it was a very wild ride. I still go. That's still my people. That's still my therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really changed my life. And I felt like um, I could feel the story inside of me and decided that it might, it might serve the world to get it out of me and put it on the page. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. And Gosh, when you describe that 27-year-old, um, I don't know if this fits in with what other people have described, like the quarter-life crisis, but a little bit of that early on existential, uh, wait a second, I thought I had it all figured out. I'm top rank in my class in law school. There's a kind of a psychological fitness that comes with keeping it together to perform that well and a mismatch feeling that you're describing really well and intimately in the book of thoughts about your own death. And um, some of those have been a lifelong journey, but just how surprising it can feel to notice, oh, there's another layer here of uh, dissatisfaction. Totally. That's such a good way to put it. And what I remembered when I, I just had gone from achievement to achievement. A lot of people are like that. I, I hear a lot of women talking about that. You check the boxes. Michelle Obama talks about that. You check the boxes, you do the right thing, you study hard. And I remember I had applied to law school when I was in the middle of a very painful breakup. And I thought, fine, I suck at relationships. I'm going to go to law school because it won't matter. I'll just work really hard. I'll have power and money and status. And it won't hurt that I don't have a family or a partner. And I, I deliberately, I buried that knowledge, but I had deliberately picked law school as a consolation prize for my abysmal per- personal life. And then, the, you know, I did well. And then I was like, oh no, <laughs> no, now what do I, now what do I do? You know? Mm. I could see how that would be such a pain relieving thought, right? Like uh, in therapy, we talk about safety behaviors and anything can be a safety behavior if it makes you feel more comfortable in a moment of pain. Uh, we talk about relaxation exercises and deep breathing. But at a certain point, if you do that too much, you run away. From your problems and that's a common experience for folks they think they can kind of income buffer their way around sadness or yeah. grief and i think now we're seeing it even with climate change no one is immune to the problems of the world you really or covid you can't buffer yourself and be completely safe you described some beautiful fantasies that you had about uh, your eventual therapist, Dr. Rosen, and some of his life experiences and uh, hearing through the grapevine that maybe this person knows something about happiness. That seems, that seems like a soothing thought to have, and, um, and especially with the cost-effectiveness of therapy, getting over that hump and being able to access it. Tell me more about what you thought you were going to get out of the group therapy experience versus what you have taken away from it? Oh, that's a good question. When I first, so I knew 
my friend who hooked me up with Dr. Rosen told me she was in a group. So I'm like, oh, and she told me the price, which was like a third of individuals. So I'm like, okay, I can figure that out. And I called him and I made an appointment and then I went to see him and I had that the interim time to build him up. Like I, I saw that he had gone to the Ivy Leagues and I had that little idea about his divorce and who he was as a person who knew pain and found his way to joy. Um, all of this based on like secondhand information, thirdhand information. But when I got there and I, I liked that he was smart and he was serious and he didn't chit chat. Like I, he asked me questions right at the heart of the matter. Like, or, or uh, like I told him a little bit about my dating history and he was like, oh, you love alcoholics. And I was like, well, yeah, but like relax. Like that just seems so, it was so bold. And so On the perfect. nose or something? Yeah, yeah. You're supposed and to I dance was, around it a little while first or totally, something? Totally, totally. And I had done, I had just, I just hadn't known anybody so um, bold in, in therapy or whatever. And um, so then I was like, okay, well, I'll do this. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do a group. I'm going to figure out a way to pay for like individual sessions. And at the end of the very first session, you get your first sessions are solo, you know, so you can talk or whatever. And then he was like, well, I would put you in a group. And I was like, whoa, 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 let's not be hasty. And he was like, that's the only way I know to get you where you want to go. And I was like, ooh, people will know my business. All the reasons people don't want to go to group. Like, who are Tell me that. Are? Tell me more about that thought. Let's not be hasty. Like, what's encoded in that? Like, what, what does that mean to go to? Is that like going to the principal's office or something? Or what am I right there? What does um, that mean to go to group? I thought that, I thought he was sort of saying, you're generic. You, I don't want to be alone with you. You're not special. Um, I, yeah, you're not special. You're going to get the bargain basement price. And, uh, and I mm -hmm. sort of, and I think right away, I don't, I don't, this didn't, totally develop but like I think I already had the transference going like oh he's gonna be like my wise my wizened friends and father figure mentor and I wanted them all to myself I don't want to go to a group and mm. have to share this experience it felt like it would be so diluted I wouldn't get well that's a different yeah. story isn't it that doesn't match up of that one-to-one -one right right getting to know yourself in this private relationship. Right. Yeah. I just had the, all I could think of is, well, if I'm not special, I'm, I felt like every time I have to go to therapy, I'm going to have to fight and claw my way to the, to the spotlight and get any help. And I just didn't know, I didn't, I didn't read up on the efficacy or why group. I don't even think I asked him. I think I just was like, okay. He did say to me, I might've said, why, why group? Uh -huh. And he's, he did say to me, what I remember him saying is, that is the only way I know how to get you where you want to go. And I was like, well, where's that? And he was like, you want relationships in your life? And I was like, yes. Then a group is a place to work on six relationships at one time. And that's pretty compelling. I mean, that's a pretty compelling, because the flip side of having to claw my way for airtime was that if I'm having an off day, I can still go and kind of coast. <laughs> That's how I thought of it. Like I can coast and whoever's in my group can sort of like take the spotlight and I can just, you know, kick mm -hmm. back and chillax some of these sessions 
if we're really going to do this every week for 90 minutes. Even if we're sitting in a circle, I can still kind of sit at the back of the class and let somebody else raise their hand and <clears throat> coast. But that wasn't your experience. What was it? No, it was there. No. <laughs> um, what I didn't know is that each session was really an opportunity to do the relationship work with all these witnesses. And we, we all got into it every session, even if, if someone's in crisis, you know, someone lost their job and they come in and they're talking about it. Well, we all jump in and everybody has a piece to contribute to everybody else's issue. And I, early on, Dr. Rosen would say to me, it, it would get to be like, we were almost done with the session and I hadn't really like felt like I'd gotten my due share. And I'd say, well, I, I don't, nobody helped me with my law school problem or my, which job do I take problem? And he would say, don't you know, we've been talking about that the whole time. And I would say, no, we were talking about so-and-so's pet ferret and somebody else's credit card debt. And I'm talking about where to start my legal career. And the training that I've gotten is that if I am connected and I am present, everybody's help belongs to me too. And that there were a way, ways to apply that seemingly unrelated feedback and um, advice, well, it's not really advice, but experience could be applied to me too. And so I didn't have to be so scarcity minded. I could go and let other people like take the floor and gain the wisdom they were getting and apply it for myself. So that's a huge benefit. I can see what you were saying earlier and what Dr. Rosen was sharing with you about having six times the relationship that you would have with one, just one individual relationship and that being a ther therapist client relationship, which is not the same as a group, group member to group member, peer to peer. Yeah, it together. What are some of the things that a fellow group member could say to you that perhaps Dr. Rosen couldn't? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's such a good question. And if I was a therapist, I would totally do groups because <laughs> you like other group members can be the mouthpiece. Like early on when I joined, I eventually joined a group that met twice a week and everyone in there was a very long-term patient. I was a total newbie and um, they had established lives and established marriages and I'm still looking for a boyfriend and a couple friends. Mm -hmm. And I would go in there and I would just complain. Like I was complaining, <laughs> like, where are my results? I want my results. And there was a group member in there um, in the book I've named him Max. And he would just be like, get off it. Your self pity is so unattractive and unappealing and it's, not the right route like what you're doing is counterproductive and he just broke it all down for me but his first words were like stop like you're so annoying <laughs> and a therapist can never say that yeah. and i was in a place where i could hear it and he was like this just calling me out on my self-pity i can't imagine ever authorizing a therapist to talk to me like a group mate did who they become like siblings right and siblings mm -hmm. say things in tones and without being very careful of other people's self-esteem <laughs> yeah it's an interesting way of 
describing that feedback and it sounds like you were in just the right place to hear it and taking it in a little dose of cold, you know, hard medicine in a way. And yeah. um, yes, I think by, that would, that's not a move I would, I mean, I was probably three and a half years into my group therapy before I could tolerate the kind of relationship I have with Mac because early on, I was very fragile and if I, and I, I don't like to be criticized. I didn't even know, but I was filled with shame. Like so sure people were going to pronounce me untreatable or hopeless. And so somebody calling me out would have just sent me packing, I believe. Um, mm. But by the time I, when I'd stuck around enough and I began to value what my group mates could do for me is like they saw me they really saw who i really was and max's point was look at you you're working really hard you're really smart you've done incredible things with your life and you're angry that you don't have the relationships you want which is fine but like self-pity let's take that off the table let's own your power and and be mad that you don't have what you want but like you're not a loser like i think i was like i'm a loser nobody wants Aww. to be with me and he was just like cut that out because it's not who it's not how i see you and there was a lot of there was a huge gift in that to me i can see how it would be much easier to take that feedback with the proof that this person's obviously going to stick around next week cuz they show they've been showing up for 3 years right along with you and so there's a huge amount of trust that goes into that. And Max played one role in the group, um, but they weren't the only one. You know, who else was playing a role and what other relationships did you develop? Um, you talked about your continuing your recovery and uh, your relationship to apples <laughs> and, uh, and even, um, you know, sharing that relationship with other group members, calling folks on the phone, getting support. Would you share? Uh, a little bit about that part of the yes. group. Sure. So one of the secrets that I had carried around, and I remember after my first solo session with Dr. Rosen, I was like, I'm never, I'm never going to tell them what I do with my food. <laughs> like such a red flag, right? I'm going to keep a secret. I'll and, participate, um, but I'll just keep this one big yeah, important I'm part to myself. This, I'm going to keep this to myself. And I had a justification like, like it doesn't matter it's, it's not holding me back but of course it was and then early on I was probably three months into treatment we were talking about something completely unrelated like nobody was talking about food and Dr. Rosen said to me like in a little lull he said Christy why don't you tell the group what you ate yesterday and I literally would have rather said anything anything I would have rather taken my clothes off because I was so ashamed to be a woman in recovery. I went to 12 step meetings. I've for blah, blah, months or years, whatever. But the truth is at night I binged every night on apples. Like I would eat up to 10 red apples. I went to the grocery store every three days and it was this, it, it was increasing. Like for a while it was like four apples, right? And then the year goes by and I'm really more like six every day. And it was a huge secret. And I didn't want to talk about it. And so Dr. Rosen suggests that I tell the group and I was like, how did you, how do you know I need to do this? Cause it was so something that he saw in me was really obvious that something was going on with my food. And I don't know, that's the magic of therapists, 
I don't know what he saw. <laughs> so then I was like, I jumped out of my seat and I, for some reason I didn't have my shoes on and I'm standing there in socks and I'm jumping up and down like, please no, please no, I'll tell you anything. And then someone in one of the group mates was like, you have to tell us now because you're going crazy. Mm-hmm. So I sh- shut my eyes and I told my, my food, my breakfast, my lunch, my dinner, they weren't great, but they were not the source of my shame. So then I told everything up until the end of dinner and I stopped talking and somebody said, is that it? And I was like, I couldn't talk. And I just shook my head. No. And I was like, well, what is it? And I was like, I ate like a bunch of apples, like maybe six, maybe eight. Like I didn't count because I didn't want to know. And, mm-hmm. and Dr. Rosen was like, open your eyes and look around the room. And I was like, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to die in this chair. This is my biggest secret. And eventually I opened my eyes and he was like, look around the room and what do you see? And I was sure they would like reject me or shame me or just be appalled. Like I had held the secret so closely that it had festered inside of me. I mean, by the time I told them, it was like I was, I had committed grave, grave crimes against innocent animals or people. Like, and when I looked at them, they were sort of like, we all have food problems too. Like nobody shamed me. And the prescription I got from Dr. Rosen was to pick a member of the group. And there was another woman there who was struggling with her food. And he said, call her every night after you're done eating and you're done with your apples, call her and tell her what you ate. And I was like, why? And he was just like, if you let go of the shame, you will get better. And I was like, oh good, I don't wanna eat all these apples. He's like, I'm not trying to get you to stop eating apples. I'm trying to get you help with your shame. I was like, well, shouldn't I call her in the morning before I eat and say, well, I'm gonna eat two apples and then stick to it. He's like, Mm -hmm. no. (laughs) No. Like a personal trainer. (laughs) Yeah, like I wanted to go on an apple diet. Mm -hmm. And he, he didn't, his suggestion was after the fact, we're treating your shame, not your apples. And so, and I'm like, why does this stranger want to hear my apple recitation every night? Um, but I also just, part of me knew that I needed to surrender. And that if I could, like, he did, he must have said to me, because it doesn't, I wasn't this wise back then. He said to me, if you can't let somebody know what you're eating, how can you have an intimate relationship? And I was just like, it was like hit me between the eyes. Like, that's mm-hmm. a really good point. <laughs> and, that's, and I started to understand, like, this secret is probably why I'm alone. I live alone, I eat alone, I do everything alone. And this is part of that, I built this. And so I need to dismantle it. So every night I would call her, the first night was terrible. I, I got her voicemail and I didn't wanna say it because I thought I was supposed to be better because I talked about it in therapy, but I probably ate six or eight apples. And she agreed to call me with her food and we exchanged food and slowly we were able to just being able to talk about it i still spent the same amount of money i still ate the same apples but i didn't walk around like feeling like i was secretly a murderer like that's Mm -hmm. how that that's how the secret worked on my heart and my body like i am a murderer and now once i started talking about the apples i was sort of like I'm a woman with some funky food stuff, which is not a reason to not look the world in the eye. And I knew I could do hard things to get better because there's nothing harder than talking about those apples. 
You're a nice, well-rounded person with lots of, you know, parts of your personality, including you know, taste <laughs> for apples. Right. I appreciate, I appreciate your way of describing that. I think, you know, you're, some folks might say hindsight is twenty twenty, or I like to explain to clients sometimes mindfulness begins after the fact, right? And you're you're describing uh, your relationship with shame, and I think that's that is a really hard emotion to to work through and see in the moment. And it sounded like Dr. Rosen was explaining it to you explicitly in some ways, and then in other ways that you had to learn it through experience of just kind of the exposure therapy of bringing some of those facts to daylight and seeing that, I don't know if it was it Rory on the other end of the phone, That's right. yes. listening and, and, and okay, talk to you tomorrow. Um, yeah. You get to be a person, um, well-rounded person in that experience. A hundred percent. I didn't even know, I didn't know really what feelings were like, that seems so crazy to say I'd made it to 27 years old. I, feelings were very abstract. I worked really hard not to feel them. So I didn't really, I wasn't well-versed or educated about my own feelings. And my first day of group, it was like probably four times. Dr. Rosen was like, what are you feeling? I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. My answer, my answers tended to be early on. were like, what's the right answer? I wanted to get an A in therapy and I wanted to tell him the answer he wanted to hear, which is all very counterintuitive to just getting well, you know, like what is the truth? I had lost that in a sea of what do people want to hear from me and what's, how do I get an A? And in that process, I lost a lot of parts of myself. Tell me more about what you had to learn in moving from that. Sounds like very familiar. I've heard it before. Law school mindset of, you know, just, you know, inputs and outputs, right? Like you study hard, you get an A and relationships are not always uh, that clear. And you describe relationships um, in the group. And I want to hear a little bit more about that, including the relationship to uh, Dr. Rosen, but meanwhile, in the in the background of your group, there's a little bit of this kind of Goldilocks story uh, of someone looking for a life partner and and um, looking to to nurture that. Um, and I'm wondering uh, what you what you how you learn to navigate relationships um, in a way that's not like getting an A in law school. What's the difference? Yeah, I mean, law school for me and, um, and the way I approached it, it was 100% about getting control. I'm going to control my mastery of this material and I'm going to spit it back on a test. And it feels so good. It feels so good to just be able to wrap my hands around all of criminal procedure and then be able to like tell the professor and then get, the, get a great grade. And what I what was devastating to me about relationships was there was no textbook, there was no right way to do it. And some of the very fundamental parts of being in a relationship, like tell the truth, say how you're feeling, ask for what you want. I was like, 
no, <laughs> I'm, I didn't know how to do that. That felt like terrifying. I hadn't been taught to do that. And I was sure everything that was a necessary ingredient to build a relationship was something that I was sure would turn people away. So I had to do a complete 180. I remember I had gone out on a date and I had the guy that I was set up with, he drank. Um, he asked me if I wanted to drink. I don't drink alcohol. And I said, no, thank you. And it was my preference that we not drink. I just was, I'm uncomfortable around alcohol. And that's, that's what I came to learn about myself. But I was, I thought if I tell this nice man who's taking me on a date, if I tell him my preferences that you not drink, he will storm out of the restaurant. He, maybe he was going to be my husband, but if I tell the truth about my relationship to alcohol, it's over. Like I, I didn't know how the world worked. And so I went to group and I was like, oh, this guy was really nice, but he ordered a bottle of wine and then he drank it by himself. And I was like so uncomfortable. And Dr. Rosen was like, I want you to send him an email or I suggest, probably because I want you to do that. I suggest you send him an email and you can say, um, I would like to see you again. I did want to see him again, but I knew I had work to do around the issue. He's like, what if you say, um, thank you for the date. I appreciate it. I would like to see you again. My preference is that neither one of us drink. And I was just, just the thought of it made me sweat. And I remember going back to my office and I had to call Rory on the phone just to send the email, like just for support. I'm like, I'm going to send this email. And this, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Like the stakes in my head were so high. If I tell the truth in a relationship, especially with a man, I couldn't do it with women either, but I was sort of fixated on why can't I have a boyfriend? Everyone's getting married. I've been a bridesmaid six times and everyone I knew had coupled up and I still was like so, so alone. But I thought that if I make one misstep and make people uncomfortable or assert myself in any way, I'm going to be alone forever. And of course the opposite is true. Right? I love that, that way of explaining it. Well, what, um, tell me more about that that part, that way of saying it, the, the opposite of, is true. I, I think back to part of the book, you explained that Dr. Rosen had a really lovely, I don't know if he came up with this or you came up with this, but um, a way of explaining, sounds like attachment to other people where um, you have experiences with each other and sometimes you might even leave a little scar um, on each other's uh, hearts and in relationship to each other. And um, some of those experiences are not great, right? Like, you know, the opposite is true, but what if it's not, you know, what about yeah. folks who are listening, thinking like, I've actually seen it go the other way. You must've learned that, um, you know, response somewhere in the environment taught you that, that bad things can happen. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, I was conditioned the way I was because in my household growing up, there was a lot of tension. There was, there weren't, the adults who were taking care of the kids were pretty maxed out. And so here I come along, I'm full of feeling and I'm super sensitive and I need a lot of handling <laughs> as a kid. And there just, there were no emotional reserves for a kid as sensitive as I was. And so I sort of learned to tamp that down. It didn't feel safe. I remember one time as a kid, I was 
it was a, it had been a long weekend. I was underslept, I'm sure. So it was probably like in seventh grade, maybe younger, maybe like a fifth grade. And I'd come home from a trip and my uh, parents had rearranged my room. And just to be like, clean it out and rearrange it. Like I was pretty messy. So that's like, now I'm a parent, I get why you might do that. But I was so rattled and so like, so hoping for the familiar of my, everything where, everything in its place. And I just burst, I just like burst into tears, like not even really sad, more overwhelmed. And I just remember both of my parents were like, you're not grateful. You're difficult. We're not going to do, we're not going to do this. And they like walked out of the room and it's like, I just think about, I mean, that's not a tragic story by any means, but there are moments like that where I just thought, you know, I'm too much. I don't, if I say, I'm not sure how I feel about this, I'm going to be abandoned. They're going to walk out of the room. And so you string a couple of those together and then a kid like me learns to tamp it all down so that everyone sort of stays comfortable and um and I think that is a very good point like I there are situations where being emotionally honest or asking for things can be volatile um or uh violence violence is a reality and I think one of the gifts that Dr. Rosen gave me was early on I think I was able to I mean I I was I, my network set me up with men, like this guy who was drinking. Um, He was fundamentally a kind guy. We weren't supposed to be together, but I did learn some of the early skills were like assessing what's even worth doing any practice with. You know what I mean? There was another guy, he emailed him, or we got, I was set up with another guy. It was before the, the bottle of wine guy. And this guy was so charming on the phone and we just had this incredible chemistry, like so fun. Mm-hmm. And he called me like the third night we were talking and he was really intoxicated. And I said, are you okay? Or something like that. And he said, well, my dad died a month ago. And so I have to drink a lot of vodka to get through this. And mm-hmm. I just, I didn't even need to go to group to realize that was a situation that was beyond my emotional circuitry (laughs) that was like it was not so I feel like when I look back at all these men I dated during the time that I was you know in search of a partnership I got very lucky that my instincts got better around where to practice and where to walk away Mm -hmm. that's a huge huge thing that um, I'm really grateful for any kind of instincts like that I want to highlight this part, if we can underline it and circle and star it, because I think it's really important, especially when we pair it with what you were just describing before, when you look at the landscape of the environment around you as a kid or with parents who are maxed out or people who've experienced violence, when there's just not enough, it feels like there there is scarcity mindset is real. Sometimes there's just not enough to go around. And your wish that I agree with you. I wish, you know, every health class across the United States and other countries had a pretty long segment on emotional awareness because that is part of the body's survival reflex and it's designed to alert us to our basic needs. And you're describing a little, you know, a little bit of the difference between core needs and areas of flexibility. And it turns out, huh, when you pay attention to those that, that sensory input that we all have it tends to lead you to 
um, maybe you won't win the lottery necessarily, but can lead you to good decisions. So Tell me a little bit more about what you learned in, in your dating experiences. And it sounds like you were in, able to internalize some lessons that started in group, but then they came to you on your own. You, you didn't even have to ask group what to do. You knew right away what other learnings came with that process of um, this one's too hot, this one's too cold, this one's yeah. just right. Yeah, like I think when I started in group, I thought, well, okay, I'm a single woman who would like to be in a partnership. Therefore, I have to say yes to anyone who's offering me anything. As a man, you know, I felt like, I mean, I probably on the outside, the words that the world gives a woman who was operating like me is like desperate. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's not a, I don't find that helpful as a label. I think what I felt was, I have to, otherwise um, I don't really want it, right? So I <laughs> remember um, this sense of, oh, here's another thing that was, this was very shocking to me. In my very first group, something happened. I can't remember what the discussion was, but Dr. Rosen said, what are you feeling? And I said, oh, we were talking about like being intimate with other people. And I didn't expect to talk that in my, about that in my co-ed group in the first hour. So it was kind of like, ah! And um, Dr. Rosen said, what are you feeling? And I was like, um, frustrated. He was like, nope. I'm like, um, uh, defensive. I was definitely feeling defensive. He's like, nope. <laughs> I was like, what am I feeling? And he said to me, shame. And I was like, shame? I had never used that word in my life and I 27 years old hiding my apple binges and had been in recovery I literally thought shame was something only survivors of horrific NBC News incest felt or if you'd like committed a crime I didn't know that any little girl could feel shame and then a bigger girl and then a woman that was the hugest revelation. And if I would have left that day, I would have gotten my money's worth. Um, of course, that's I a really around. important lesson that you are not, you are not your shame. You, in fact, you have lots of bodily functions. You can smell, you can see, you can hear. If you're lucky, you have all five senses. And yeah. um, shame also is, it means your senses are working just fine. Yeah, I just had no idea. And so when I went out, into the dating world, I would, with knowing, oh, I'm a person who feels shame, or that might come up on a date. And I remember I would be with men on a date or whatever, um, or with someone I was in a relationship with, and I would become aware of boundaries I wanted, maybe around things about being intimate or how we handle money. Um, money is hard. It's as hard to me as my body. So, you know, I wanted my boyfriend to help contribute to our entertainment, you know, financially. And um, I felt so much shame. And it was through learning that I felt shame that I learned that, okay, I have a choice. I can sit here and feel shame about how about my reticence or about the, I'm in a relationship with a man who doesn't know he's got to pay sometime. 
Or I can stay quiet and be resentful and veer into self-pity. And I began to understand like what price I wanted to pay, where I wanted to come out. So eventually it became easier for me to confront my shame and say, okay, I feel ashamed about this. And I could tell him, I did, this was another huge revelation. I can just say, hey, boyfriend, I feel a lot of shame about this, but I need to talk about how we deal with money. That took me two years of therapy to be able to do. I just didn't, I didn't know how to have those kinds of what felt like loaded conversations. And oftentimes, once I recognized my own shame, I realized I was a person who was very sensitive to other people's shame, right? So I don't want to mention money because he doesn't have very much and I have more than he has. So my choice became address it head on. Like, how would we like to talk about money, deal with money, or just kind of have an elephant in the room. And I just became intolerant of those elephants. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't really do it anymore, which is a great thing. I like that way of saying it. I didn't, you know, I wasn't tolerant of those elephants in the room anymore. And when you talk about the skills it takes to get over that hump of tolerance, that you're multitasking a little bit because you not only have to get up the courage to say it, <clears throat> but tell me, some of the reactions when you spoke up for what you wanted in a relationship. Sometimes it meant the, the end of a relationship. Yeah, I definitely thought I had so much magical thinking when I started in therapy, like, ooh, I do these hard things every week. I go to these sessions and I've learned how to be honest and Rory knows about my food and they taught me how to say things on dates. So I thought, well, I'm going to be rewarded with a great relationship. And um, what I was rewarded with was more lessons and more, the, the great relationship was coming, but I had more to learn. And so early on, one of my first boyfriends, as when I was in group, you know, I finally, I, I had been dating him almost a year and a half. And I was calling, I was talking to someone from my group. I was like, I just want to have dinner with him. It was a Friday night and a beautiful summer night. I was walking home from work alone. He was home alone doing his thing. I was like, why aren't we together? Like we've been dating, we've traveled the world together. And I was scared to say, can we have dinner? And I'm talking to a group mate, it must've been Patrice. She was like, just call him and ask him to dinner. I'm like, okay. And I called him and I was like, uh, can we have dinner together? And he was like, no, I really wanna be alone. I'm like, okay. And then I had more to say. I was like, well, this doesn't work for me. Like being alone in my relationship, you know, we had no plans for the weekend and I understood he's a person who wants to be alone. And I'm a person who wants to go to dinner with her boyfriend. And we basically came, that was the night where we realized we're not supposed to be together. And what I thought he would say was like, sure, I'll hop on the train and I'll meet you at the Thai place because we both care about each other and this isn't hard. I wasn't asking him to elope or, you know, I would have paid for dinner (laughs) and he Mm -hmm. he didn't want to. And I finally was able to hear it and that was super upsetting because, you know, anybody who's looking for a relationship and now I've invested a year and a half or more and I thought, well, I'm in therapy. I'm working hard. This was supposed to be my thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't my future. It was a piece of my future. It gave me 
gave me insights and opportunities, but it wasn't my future. I think that's really important learning. And some people never use that skill of seeing what they mean. And they do a different skill set of kind of pain management or pain tolerance, just kind of going with the flow, um, losing themselves a little bit in that. So you, you, you made some brave decisions and brought things up in conversation and um, didn't give up and kept going to group and kept talking about it. And I'm wondering for you how, you know, what it looked like to recognize that balance of getting your core needs met in a healthy relationship and having to be flexible, you know, even folks in long-term healthy relationships have doubts about their relationships. They wonder what's too much to put up with or ask for. And I'm wondering what, what you've learned about that balance. Yeah, that's a really, that's so important. I don't think people talk about this enough. Like I know for me, like there's some like non-negotiables, like I need to feel safe. Um, For me, that happens to include, like, I don't, I don't want to have a household where there's alcohol or guns or um, violence or um, a lack of communication. That to me has started to feel like a form of violence. Silent treatments feel like a form of violence. <laughs> now, truth, truth be told, in my relationship, I'm the one more likely to shut down and be silent than my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I also, you know, those are my core needs, right? Like being safe, being heard, being allowed to make mistakes. Um, I also, I had, I re- recently, and this has sort of like been a long time coming, is like, I want to be in a relationship where effort, efforts are, efforts are celebrated. And as opposed, just, I want to move away from this sense of like, only accomplishments are celebrated. I like, effort being celebrated and I love um, that you get to celebrate much earlier in that case you don't have to wait until the accomplishment and you get to enjoy the ride totally I just think it's too long between triumphs you know like I want I just need a little more day-to-day celebration and um I would say like one of the things in in my relationship with my husband like he doesn't love to apologize. Now he doesn't do a lot of things that require apology, but it's something that I have, there have been times in our relationship where I've really stewed about this, like, just say you're sorry. And, um, <laughs> say uncle. Totally. Like, but, but what I, what I realized, like, this is an example where first of all, part of my part is I want it to look a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. I want to hear magic words. I want it to be, I want him to do it exactly like a script in my head that I have not shared with him, you know? So Mm -hmm. if we've had an incident where I want an apology, maybe he makes me dinner or he comes to pick me up downtown when it's raining and he's more likely to show me he's sorry and he'll show me, I'm here, I love you, we're going to do it differently, but like, I'm still, I, you know, meanwhile, he saved me from a train trip and a downpour in the rain. And I'm still like, where's my sorry. <laughs> and so that's the place where I'm like, okay, could this, do I need to loosen up and see 
learn how to recognize an I'm sorry, an amends, a reconnection, instead of rigidly holding on to a certain kind of idea. And, you know, in the rough and tumble of life, like when you're dating things, it's just the world is the two of us, right? And now we have complex lives. We have children, we have neighbors, we have houses. I mean, we have one house, but we have to, <laughs> we have to deal with it. And, you know, sometimes I have this feeling of like, I want his attention. I want him. It's 10 o'clock at night. I have a story about something that happened at work. And he, meanwhile, has done his job. He's done the bedtime. He's tired and he wants to go to sleep. And in previous relationships, because I was so starving, I was so, the baseline in the relationship was for me to starve, which I completely colluded in. Um, the, the going to sleep when I have a story was just like unbelievably painful. It was such a, <clears throat> it was such a sign that this is a decrepit, unworkable relationship. But in my marriage, because I'm fed all day and generally very nourished, if my husband falls asleep, which has been known to happen, a little snoring when I'm working up to the punchline of my story, um, it's not <laughs> the end of the world. Like, Sometimes I'm, I'm like hurt. I'm like, I really wanted your help. Um, but I recognize that if 99% of my needs that belong in the marriage are being met, then it's okay that he was tired. Maybe I should start telling him stories before 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can always find the way that I contributed to my own misery. Um, but mostly yeah. when I reflect back, like, I am very well fed. And so I don't, I don't have that starving, dehydrated feeling in my relationship such that we can handle the bumps and miscommunications along the way. I love that, that description of satiation. It's almost like, you know, the difference between going to the kitchen and wanting a a uh, big piece of cheese and big brie or something and getting Cheez-Its instead and feeling like, oh, this doesn't taste quite right, but you can actually feel the difference when you feel, you don't feel hungry anymore. You get what you, what you need. Well, I love that. I love that description. And, and before you said, you know, when you were early on in your group therapy experience, you really thought you could achieve the heck out of it and be an A plus therapy student and had, you know, that would solve everything and you'd feel better. Um, and you mentioned that you've been with group for a while now, and I'm wondering uh, what you continue to learn in that process. I heard before it was almost like a kind of a never doneness in terms of self development and learning about yourself. What have you learned um, over the course of just being part of that continual experience? That's a great question. What, what I feel like my, my thoughts about this are, I have learned through the group therapy process how to attach. And I learned that by becoming attached and intimate with the people in my group and with Dr. Rosen. And I, I don't want to lose that. Um, so the model has never been graduate from therapy. Um, it's more like, well, okay, when I came in, I was 27 years old and I really wanted relationships. And so I learned how to do that. But now, you know, fast forward 20 years, <laughs> I'm 47 and there's still things I want in my life. I still need support. I still need witnesses. Um, I'm not binging on apples every night, but I'm trying to figure out 
how to survive a pandemic with two children and I'm trying to face changes in my body, changes in my family. I have parents who are in good health today, but there's some health issues on the horizon. When I think about my life and what I want from a life is I want dynamism. I want to keep growing and changing and learning new things about myself and anything new I want to do. I personally want to have a group in my corner where I can go and say, well, that did not go well. <laughs> when I had, when I brought all my family together of different political persuasions together, it didn't go well. And I feel really sad and scared and disappointed. I, that's not something that was on my plate 20 years ago, but it is today. And so what I'm still learning is I still need practice being intimate doing new things, being brave, identifying my feelings. Like sometimes, even today, I had a group yesterday morning and I was telling, I had reconnected with a friend and I was afraid that this, you know, we just hadn't spoken in many years, my friend and I. And I had an email from her and I was scared to read it. I was, I just had the fantasy, like, what if she's like, you're terrible. Why'd you email me? I don't like you very juvenile feeling, but it was so real. And so I saved it and I said, I'm going to read it during group. And so we get on and we're on zoom because it's the pandemic. And I said, you know, I'd like to read this with the group, read it out loud to you so that I have your support. And I did. And it didn't say any of the things I thought it said, I love you. I miss you. You were so funny and such a wonderful friend. And it was so moving and I'm crying and Dr. Rosen is saying, breathe, what are you feeling? <laughs> it was like, some of that seemed like it would get old, but for me, I, I love that. I love having support, having a place to go. I love watching other people. You know, now I'm old and people come in to the group and they want the things that I wanted 20 years ago. And they're sad. They're dating men and women who ghost them and they don't know how to have relationships. And I can just say, just keep coming back. We've got you. We'll show you. We'll teach yeah. you. I Not love the idea that at any stage of life, sometimes this helps me as a thought. I just like to imagine having my trainee hat on. Like, actually, I've never been here before. Even if I'm umpteenth years old, I still am learning new things. And I've um, never exactly had this feeling before. glad you mentioned Zoom. I think a lot of folks will be on adapted technology for a good long while to help with COVID containment. And even in the book, there's a little uh, tiny blurb that gets mentioned where you go on a trip somewhere and you call into group anyways. And, and so you've seen the online migration. How has it been to switch to the online landscape with group? I would say for the most part, I just feel really grateful to still be connected. Um, it's such a strange time. Like I, my heart goes out to people who are not in already established mental health supportive situations or if they can't afford it or if it's not available. Um, 
that makes my heart hurt to think about it. It has been a real lifesaver. This has been really challenging for, um, as it is for everyone. And so to have that support, I will say that there are times when it feels, I feel the weight of its inadequacy. Like I want to see, I want them to see my body language, my body, you know, like one of the things that's been really like life-saving for me with my group because they sat with me all these years I'll come in and say I feel really fat I don't know I you know I still have an eating disorder um and they'll give me a reality check they're looking at my body like you wear those clothes you've been wearing them for five years this mm. is something else get what's up under that what, what's what's really going on right and now I don't there's what I've lost by not having them see my body is like this weird relationship with my eating disorder and my body dysmorphia, I don't have that check, you know, and I miss, you know, sometimes when we're getting into it in a session and I'm sitting alone in my office and I'm crying and it's a therapy thing where I'm used to having people pass me the tissues, rub my shoulder, uh, just the gestures and then the, the immediacy and the physicality, I definitely miss it. But I also feel like the online option is completely vital and I'm grateful for it every time. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize we're all in deprivation mode right now and not just not getting enough of that warm and cozy contact. And um, that's what you're doing together, I suppose, in group is you're dealing with that reality together. That's what you're doing, which is um, better than not having that. Yeah. Well, Thank you, Christy, for sharing all of your personal experience. As my last question for you, I would like to ask you to speak directly to anyone who's having doubts about, you know, it is hard to find the right group or find access to a group. And there are lots of sliding skill resources. Folks should definitely Google around their area and um, call 211 in your county and they can uh, refer you to resources and uh, check out student centers and um, your insurance plan. There, there are ways to access it, but typically you do have to jump through some hoops to get it or find the right match for you. Um, but for some reason you did it. You stuck it out and you did have doubts along the way um, and you're sharing what you've learned from that. What would you say to folks who are still not quite sure about group, individual, try, trying therapy at all? Sure. I think it's totally... First of all, it's totally normal to have doubts and obstacles. Some of them are very real. Some obstacles like money or opportunity, those are real. But also there's obstacles that are um, inside of, there were obstacles inside of me that were resistance, that when I got into enough pain, I was willing to surmount them. Um, and I guess what I would say is, um, be willing to have conversations with other people. Like one of the issues I think is like a stigma around mental health. And my, my view is like mental health treatment should be like the dentist. Like we should, we should do it and not be, I don't, I'm not ashamed to tell you I got my teeth clean. So yeah, I um, hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, having conversations, like you may not be ready to, join a group or hook up with a therapist who's going to take your money or your insurance and whatever. But could you talk to a friend who maybe they have a therapist or just when I started to have those conversations, 
that's what led me along the way. And what I saw in my friend who first suggested group was something changed in her. There was a light on in her eyes and a something about her full heartedness was coming to the surface. And so even if I hadn't been ready for group, I could ride the coattails of her faith and her, her process. And so that's another route. Like if somebody's not ready, they can start having conversations with people in their lives um, about their own mental health treatment. And that might lead you to the right fit for you. I just know for me, I was really depressed. And so taking a lot of action on my own behalf was really daunting. It was sort of all I could do to like get myself to work and I'd go to my 12 step meetings and um, if I'd had to have, if I would have had to make a bunch of phone calls and fill out a bunch of forms, it would have been really hard. But to help me, like to have a friend or a buddy or a witness or somebody who's in the trenches with me, um, mm -hmm. like one thing that somebody could do if they're feeling overwhelmed, like I have a list of, I have a list of places I could call and I keep not calling, right? Like that's mm -hmm. a common thing. Like have a buddy, sit mm -hmm. with you dial the phone for you like the sooner the more steps i can take to not be alone in what i'm struggling with um even if it's just like sitting next to me while i i have to do the hard thing but if someone could sit next to me hold my hand rub my foot that sometimes helps me take actions that otherwise would be impossible i love that i appreciate you sharing that and um you know, just holding yourself accountable in that way and not giving up on having the supports that you deserve to have. You know, when I read your book, I thought of Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and she did just an artful job of describing that therapy really is a conversation and it's um, not as scary as you think it is. And I think you, you, brought that light into the group process, which is even less understood than therapy at large. And as listeners to the show know, Therapy for Real Life podcast is not therapy. It's designed to be skills and ideas that you can think about either between therapy sessions or outside of that process. And so um, as you take in Christy's wise words, uh, I encourage you to read her book, Group, and think about what it would look like for you to take uh, brave steps in your relationships and think about what uh, relationships mean to you. Christy Tate, thank you so much for joining the Therapy for Real Life podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Real Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. 
Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops, and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.